Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Anthony Lyserwitz, Senior Research Scientist and Director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and a Senior Research Scientist at the Yale School of the Environment. His interdisciplinary research seeks to understand the psychological, cultural, political, and geographic factors that shape human environmental perception, decision-making, and behavior. Lyserwitz earned both his master's degree and PhD in environmental studies from the University of Oregon. On November 19th, 2020, Lyserwitz will give a virtual lecture, Climate Change in the American Mind, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2020-2021 Criticos Lecture in the Humanities. His talk is part of this year's Climate Justice series. Thanks, Tony, for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be with you. So what led to your interest in environmental studies and decision science? Hmm. So for me, it was a bit of a winding path. As an undergraduate, uh, I studied international relations. So I was interested in Cold War politics, basically how do we keep the world from blowing itself up with nuclear weapons in the Cold War era? Uh, so I spent a lot of time studying, you know, Soviet nuclear policy, China nuclear policy. You know, I thought I had a long career ahead of me in that. And six months before I graduated, the Berlin Wall came down and my international relations degree turned into a history degree like that. So, uh, so I actually followed a good friend of mine out to Aspen, Colorado. I thought I was going to be a ski bum for a while, make some money, you know, travel around the world. I had, you know, idealistic visions of as a young man. And instead, I actually ended up with a full-time job at an institute called the Aspen Global Change Institute. And this was an amazing opportunity because I got to basically work with the world's leading climate scientists, atmospheric scientists, biodiversity experts, and so on, and spent the next four years basically getting this incredible education from the world's top experts about all these global environmental challenges, in particular, climate change. And it was just an amazing experience, and it, it, it completely changed my life. But I'll say that at the end of that process, I found myself getting a little frustrated because these were mostly natural scientists and they were wonderful people. I'm not uh, saying anything about that. But I kind of felt like, well, we're talking about all the consequences of climate change and the, the root causes of terms of fossil fuel burning and so on. But what gets us into these problems in the first place? And that's where my interest really came to is that the reason we have climate change as a problem, the reason why we have biodiversity extinctions as a problem is human beings. It's our perceptions of the world. It's our decision-making about the world. It's our behavior that leads us into these problems in the first place. So I got really interested in trying to ask, well, what is it about us that gets us into these problems? Because I think that's how we're going to actually get out of them, is that we've really got to understand ourselves first and foremost, because these are human problems. They're not natural problems. So then that led me on a long winding path to the U of O, which was just this incredible, unlike anywhere else in the country, uh, opportunity to study these issues across the university. And I just wanna say uh, you know, a big thank you to the U of O uh, for just one of the richest experiences of my life. Uh, I got my master's there and then decided to stay on and become the first doctorate in environmental science studies and policy because Unlike other schools where, or other universities where they tend to put environmental studies in its own little category and like maybe they create a department or a major or something like that and it's become segregated, U of O made the different decision to, yes, they have a program, but they embedded faculty and expertise all across the university. So I was able to study with world leading, you know, um, 
humanities scholars. Like I studied environmental history and I studied eco-criticism with some of the top people in English. And yet I also studied anthropology and political science and then lots in geography, which was my home discipline uh, as a doctoral student. So, I mean, I just had the ability to draw on the full diversity and breadth of the university to create my own program in, in a sense. And I just couldn't have done that anywhere else, let alone the fact that it was also happened to be in Eugene, which is a pretty nice place to hang out for a few years. So no, it was really just an incredible journey um, that led me ultimately to uh, then my work, which is really studying how do people perceive these kinds of issues uh, and then how do they decide and, and behave about them? Uh, and that's what I continue to do to this day. So you mentioned about our environmental studies program that it is, it, it is really the most truly interdisciplinary program on our campus. So say a little bit about the variety of disciplines that you draw on in your work. So I've taken what I learned from uh, my U of O experience and it still plays out in my work today. So I'm incredibly fortunate with the program that I run is I work with uh, top psychologists, with political scientists, uh, with economists, uh, with humanities scholars, uh, religion and ecology. And we've done a lot of work in that space. Um, I mean, all across the board, geographers, um, and uh, health experts and natural scientists and so on and so forth. And in the end, this is one of the critical things about this issue and frankly, all important issues is that they are interdisciplinary. They have to be interdisciplinary because these are highly complex problems. Um, you can't just understand, let alone fix climate change just from a perspective of political science or just from the perspective of atmospheric chemistry you actually need to incorporate knowledge and, and perspectives from all of those different places to really understand this complex problem that we're talking about trying to deal with. Um, so really that is at the heart of environmental studies itself is almost all environmental issues are not just a natural problem, but also a social problem. Um, and you have to be able to draw on all those different uh, disciplines and perspectives to really understand what's going on. So can you tell us a little bit about how the uh, climate change communication program at Yale got started? Sure. So I was very happy after I graduated. I, I, my first job as a doctorate student was to go work at Decision Research, which is this fabulous world-class uh, research institute right there in Eugene, where I spent the first four years after uh, my doctorate. But then I got a, an offer I couldn't refuse uh, from the then dean of the Yale School of the Environment, a guy named Gus Speth. Uh, and he basically needed somebody to come and uh, run a new interdisciplinary climate change program that he was setting up. He was passionate, uh, actually was one of the real pioneers in terms of bringing climate change to the presidential level, uh, even back in the Carter administration. Um, and I said, okay, I would love to do that. But one critical thing is I need to be able to bring my research with me. And so uh, he agreed to that demand and uh, we've been uh, working ever since. And basically from those very beginnings, we started with two people. We're now over 80 um, uh, people on the full breadth and depth of the kind of work that we do. And one of the nice things about Yale is that we do have the ability to again, work across many different disciplines. But the other really nice thing is that we've been able to make connections with other leading scholars all over the world. And that really is, a, is an exceptional place to be uh, because I've got great colleagues in China and India and Europe and, and so on. So it's, it's really been a, a fun experience. 
So can you tell us in a nutshell how you understand the aims of the program on climate change communication? What do you do there? What's at the, what, 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 what are your outputs? Sure. So our fundamental question is how do mass societies respond to these issues? So what do people understand and misunderstand about the causes, the consequences, and the solutions to climate change? How do they perceive the risks? So the likelihood and severity of different types of impacts could be sea level rise or health impacts or forest fires, et cetera. What kinds of policies do people support or oppose? And then what kinds of behaviors are people willing to do personally to get involved and help make a difference? But ultimately as scientists, our real question then is why? What are the underlying psychological, cultural, political, geographic reasons why some people get really engaged with this issue Others are kind of apathetic and some are downright dismissive and hostile. And so we've really been able to bring a lot of research now over a decade's worth of work working at the national scale, many, many national uh, survey studies, uh, working increasingly at state and local levels where so much of the action has to take place uh, regardless of who's in control in Washington DC, uh, but also a lot of work internationally. We've done studies in China, in India, in about 130 countries around the world. So it's been, really an incredible ability to see and understand how human beings are responding to this issue or not responding to this issue all over the planet. But then based on what we've learned from all of that, we also then have a public outreach and engagement uh, uh, effort that we call Yale Climate Connections. And this is deeply informed by the research that we've done. Uh, it's very much why we tell the kinds of stories that we do. But basically 10 years ago, we started with a, an online climate news service because we could see that the mainstream media really wasn't covering this well. So we went out and we hired a whole bunch of environmental journalists and started doing uh, articles online. Uh, that was followed then by a monthly video series. And then now over six years ago, we started a national radio program, which plays right there in Eugene, as well as all over the country currently plays usually about twice a day, uh, every day with a brand new story each day on uh, 650 plus stations uh, across the whole country. Um, and really the point of those is that second word of the title, connections. Uh, and that's really the goal is how to help make this issue that for many people seems far away, global, abstract, very difficult to get your head around and how to connect it to our actual lives and to our values and to do so through storytelling, first person storytelling, not a bunch of just you know people like me lecturing at you, but real people from every walk of life talking about how both they're experiencing the impacts of climate change here and now, but even more importantly, who are rolling up their sleeves and taking action to try to make a difference within the sphere of their own influence. It could be with their friends, it could be with their family members, it could be at the business that they work, uh, or it could be politically trying to demand larger systematic change. Um, and anyway, that's just been an incredible privilege for me. We've told now thousands of these stories. Uh, and most people, these are the stories that you don't see in the media. Um, the media always is chasing the latest crisis or the latest controversy or, or, or you know, the latest scientific findings. And those are all important. But what they're not really getting to is the core reasons why this matters. Why do we care? And why do the diversity of people, all people, uh, uh, care about this issue? And so that's really what we hope to, to, and have been privileged to be able to bring to the American public. That's just fascinating work. Um, can we talk a little bit about um, impacts of the work? 
So on the one hand, you 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 create these policy uh, reports, many of them, and I've looked at some on your website. Say a little bit about um, how those get used, or have they been used by government officials or uh, you know other institutions around the country? Yeah, it's been again one of the really fun things about this particular domain is that the work that we do isn't just interesting from a scientific reason, and we publish a lot, so we are scientists but it's of such value to so many other groups outside. So we have, I mean, there are many, many uh, uh, elected officials that use our work. I mean, and everything from the level of, you know, the White House to members of Congress, to members of state houses and state legislatures and governors and mayors uh, and local officials all over the country have been able to take advantage of our work, especially some of the work that we've done to bring this down to the state and local level so they can actually, for the first time, understand what their own constituents think about this. Um, but it's also turned out to be an enormously useful resource for journalists. So, and again, not just journalists from the New York Times or the Washington Post, but the Goshen Express, right? <laughs> or the, you know, the, the really small but local areas that otherwise rarely hear about climate change. Um, and then of course, many scientists, many educators, and then ultimately also critically, the advocacy community who are using these kinds of results to guide their own strategies, to choose their tactics, to get smarter and better about how do we communicate effectively to the publics that we're trying to reach. And so again, it's just, it means that we get to sit at a really interesting nexus of a lot of different communities that, that do uh, take advantage of the kinds of insights that we develop. And, and what about the impacts of the Climate Connections uh, public outreach work where your, you know, your radio broadcasts and your videos, do you have a sense of their impacts? Do you, do you can you re measure those? Yeah, we can actually. So, I mean, one is just reach obviously. So the program has just grown and grown and grown. And like I mentioned earlier, we're now on over 650 stations across the country. Um, so that itself is a pretty good indication that there's an appetite, there's a demand uh, for this kind of content. Um, but beyond that, because we are also a research organization, we're actually able to take the stories that we tell and actually test them uh, experimentally and see, do they actually inform people? Do people actually uh, become better educated about this issue? Do they, does it change their understanding of the threat or the risk? Does it change their support for policy or their own willingness to get engaged? And so we've done a number of those kinds of studies, include, including several that we published uh, in the academic literature, showing that this works, um, that storytelling, and this is where it comes back to the humanities, Okay, the humanities are absolutely a critical player in this. And so like what I was saying before, it's not just the natural sciences, it's also not just the social sciences. The humanities are essential to this too because the humanities are what give the world meaning. Um, they're what, you know, it, it's, the, it's the deep cultural work uh, that is so important. And that's what we're finding with these stories. Storytelling is still one of the most powerful forms of communication human beings have ever invented. Yes, we've got virtual reality and you know, video and YouTube and you know, all these other new technologies. It's all still stories. It still comes down to the thing that we were doing around the campfire in you know, Neolithic era. So uh, you know, that really is uh, essential, is that the humanities have to play a crucial, crucial role in helping society engage with this issue. 
Well, obviously, I couldn't agree with you more on that topic. Um, I would also say to you that my uh, the former uh, vice president for research and innovation, who's just retired, uh, he is a um, marine biologist. And when he arrived, he said, the science is proven, the problem is communication. And in, in, in regards to that, um, I'm just curious about um, you know, the challenge that scientists have had about communicating about climate change, right? They're, they're scientists, they're doing research. Um, obviously the work that your center does, you know, is right in the heart of this question about communication, but have you seen a shift in the culture of climate scientists around this question of their response, their sense of obligation to communicate? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say it's broader than just climate scientists that what I'm about to say is true of environmental science more broadly. Um, and that is, I think there really is a generational shift underway, which is not to say that only young scientists are doing this and older ones aren't. There's some fantastic older scientists that have led the way and in fact created a safe space within the academy for younger scientists to also follow in some of their footsteps. But the younger scientists in particular, I mean, it's like it's hard for me to find an environmental scientist that's coming out of, uh, you know, it's recently gotten their doctorate or is a postdoc or is an early professor that doesn't want to engage the broader discourse, the broader public in bringing what they know. And this is really one of the critical things that I think this whole community has come to come to grips with is that, you know, there are a traditional view of science that science is to be as objective as, as possible. It is to not get involved at all in any of these issues of values or decision-making or policy, just simply to do the science, essentially throw it over the fence and let the policymakers do whatever they will. And that's a fine, I mean, that's fine if people want to uh, maintain that position. But many environmental scientists at the same time were watching the literal rending apart and unraveling of the very systems that they loved to study. Like you watch an old growth forest being cut down. <laughs> you, you see the loss of the wetlands that you've devoted your life to studying. You're seeing the extinction of the species that you've been studying for decades. Uh, or the climate system is literally doing what we know it is possible, it is capable of doing based on the paleo record and you know, looking back thousands and even millions of years, you know, human beings have been incredibly lucky to live in the past 10,000 years, which has been this really warm and stable cocoon in which our entire civilization has emerged. I mean, our entire civilization, you're talking about humanities again, all of human history, literature, art, science, uh, cities, everything we have done has happened within this incredibly stable and warm little cocoon of, of climate conditions. And we are right now just throwing that all potentially really out of balance. And when you look at that long-term history, that's not the norm. And the climate system is capable of acting in ways that human beings, modern humans have never experienced. So anyway, the, the point there is that all of these are needed. All of these perspectives are crucial. And so, uh, Anyway, that, that's why I'm really thrilled to be part of this particular program. Do you guys um, help to train scientists to communicate to the public? Is that one of the things that you do? Uh, we do some of that. I mean, we actually train lots of different types of, of people, um, but scientists have definitely been one of the audiences or the communities that we've really worked a lot with. Um, and you know, back to your prior point, 
many scientists haven't had training in this. I mean, that's not a standard part of most scientific training is how to actually communicate to anyone outside your field. So um, I think that's one of the things that we've been really gratified to see changing over the past 10 years is a real hunger and an appetite among scientists to figure out how do I do that? Uh, and of course, also recognizing that the, the communications infrastructure itself is radically different today than it was 10 years ago. I mean, when I was at U of O, I don't think Twitter existed. <laughs> um, and so that has just radically changed the ability of scientists to go straight to a mass public uh, to communicate what they know. Uh, and to basically, oh, and that was the point I was gonna make about this shift within the scientific community is that, you know, in many ways, many scientists are coming to the conclusion that, you know, I have unique knowledge and understanding of what's happening in reality out there in the world. And I have a moral responsibility. I mean, literally a moral responsibility to share what I know with the larger world so they can at least make a more informed decision as they, as we move forward into this ever more complicated 21st century. Um, so anyway, I think you are seeing this generational shift within the scientific community. So you mentioned uh, that when you were at U of O, that was before Twitter even existed. Can you say a little bit about how um, uh, the climate connections work that you do um, works with you know, the most cutting edge social media that's out there in, in trying to expand the audience that gets the information that you share? Sure, I mean, we've, we're all in on that. So, I mean, and it's actually one of the wonderful things about working with students. We have about 40 students who are working with us. Some of them are dedicated to Instagram. Some of them are focused on Facebook. Some of them do Twitter, others do LinkedIn. I mean, uh, you know, we're, I'm not doing TikTok videos yet. So, uh, you know, I have my limits, but, uh, but nonetheless, uh, this is where people are, okay? And I think I, we cannot emphasize that enough. You need to go to where people are. And one of the really cardinal rules of climate change or frankly communication period is know your audience. Who are they? Uh, where are they? Like what platforms are they on? Who do they trust? Where do they get their information? Uh, what are their underlying values? Uh, that's the kind of research that we try to answer is who are those different audiences? Uh, you know. Uh, uh, a Gen Z 18 year old at the U of O is not the same probably in their news media uh, consumption as a, you know, a professor who's ready to retire from the U of O, right? Uh, and so where are people, okay? And how do you meet them where they are, not where you are? You mentioned that um, there's a range of attitudes among the American public toward climate change. And I know that, uh, at one extreme are people that are, uh, they're not convinced. Mm -hmm. How do you meet them where they are? Can you tell us some of the strategies you use to speak to the most resistant audience? Yeah, so first of all, I will just say that I think we actually spend way too much time worrying about the conspiracy minded folks. And I'll talk about this in my lecture of what proportion of the country they actually are but they suck up far too much attention from everybody else that actually cares about the issue. So I, one, I would just, like to say, let's not do that. On the other hand, one of the other critical things of effective communication is that communication, most people is immediately assume, well, communication is how do I speak better, right? How, is, how do I change what I say so they can hear it? And that's actually not the first step. The first step is listening, okay? Back to what I said, that's the only way you're gonna figure out who that 
other person or that audience is, is by listening to them and figuring out where they're at and then trying to meet them where they are. And so even just taking the group that we call the dismissive, that's our term for, uh, for those folks, you've got to really understand where they're coming from and how they see the world and what they're afraid of. And they're deeply afraid of certain things related to climate change. Uh, they don't trust some of the key messengers that they've seen talking about climate change. Uh, and they themselves are not a homogenous group. They're broken up into lots of different groups. Some people, it's, it's a religious issue, right? Only God controls the climate, okay? That's a very different perspective than somebody who's an atheist libertarian who's afraid of, you know, government overreach and, you know, imposition of government mandates on, on the broader public. That's a very different perspective. And so, you know, in the end, once you understand that, then you can try to find a way to engage them on their terms. And I think we're finding that, you know, it's not easy by any means, but there are ways to connect to the things that people already care about. You please don't try to turn everybody into a replica of yourself because that ain't going to work. And if that's your, if your strategy, we're doomed because there's no way you're going to convince you know, uh, hardcore dismissives to give up their entire political ideology, their entire identity to become a tree hugging environmentalist like myself. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, it's really about respecting people, uh, really trying to understand where they're coming from, and then to the extent that you can, engaging them, uh, starting at that starting point. So we're almost at the end of our time. I think this will be my last question. So you're interested in what you call the political climate of climate change. And I'm speaking to you now just days after Joe Biden has been elected as the next president of the United States. Do you think his election will make a difference in the political climate of climate change and in how Americans think about and respond to the problem? Yeah, so my favorite response to this is just that my crystal ball is cloudy. Um, I think it's fair to say it will make a difference. Um, just in terms of the levers of power, it makes a difference. I mean, if nothing else, uh, he will reverse all the, um, the negative things that Donald Trump did. I mean, Trump was doing a lot to allow, you know, methane pollution and, you know, trying to get rid of the fuel economy standards that would get carbon uh, pollution out of our transportation fleet and so on and so on and so on and so on. So at minimum, he can basically reverse all those and probably put the US back to where it was under the Obama administration, which is a, at least a step back to where we were. And he can take a whole series of administrative actions that can actually make some incremental additional progress. The critical question that I can't answer because we're only a couple of days out is uh, what happens in Georgia and that what happens to the makeup of the US Senate, that is the ball game. There's either legislation about climate change possible because Democrats have control of the Senate or it will not happen because Republicans have control. So that's relatively straightforward. Um, the other is that we don't know what's gonna happen on the Republican side. Um, I can't tell you what Donald Trump's gonna do. Uh, I don't think the Republicans can tell you what Donald Trump is gonna do. Um, I can guess that he probably won't be quiet. Uh, I mean, he's certainly not even the conceding the election as of right now today. So you know, what role does he continue to play in constraining or pushing Republicans in a particular direction? I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, and so I think there's a lot we just don't know yet about what the world looks like uh, come January, February of 2021. 
Well, Tony, thanks so much for speaking with us today. On that note of uncertainty, I want to say, well, we're we're grateful for the work that you do at Yale. Uh, we need that work. And uh, thanks for this very interesting conversation. We're really looking forward to your lecture uh, on the 19th of November. Well, that's great. And I really look forward to seeing you all soon, soon, soon. I've been speaking with Anthony Lizerowitz, Senior Research Scientist and Director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. On, Nover, on November 19th, 2020, Lizerowitz will give a virtual lecture, Climate Change in the American Mind, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2020-2021 Criticos Lecture in the Humanities. His talk is part of this year's Climate Justice series. Thanks so much for watching.